Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment. That side of it, the reality of death, the reality of the danger, is very difficult to convey in a way that doesn't glamorize the job. CNN international correspondent Clarissa Ward talks about her new memoir, On All Fronts, The Education of a Journalist. It's a good conversation coming up in just a moment. But first, this news. President Donald Trump is scheduled to visit Macon this evening for a campaign rally. As for the Biden-Harris ticket, well, Senator Kamala Harris's husband, Doug Imhoff, is set to visit on Sunday. Now, Trump won Georgia in 2016 by a little over five percentage points. As for this year, multiple polls indicate here in Georgia the race is too close to call. And pollsters are also predicting record-breaking rates of voter turnout this year. Now, all this, plus a pandemic, is putting a strain on local polling places. All this comes as the number of coronavirus cases nationwide are rising, including here in Georgia. The latest figures from the State Department of Public Health show newly confirmed COVID-19 cases are up by 6 percent. This over the last two weeks. Now, at the time of this broadcast, here we go. 336,241 COVID-19 cases in total have been confirmed here in the state. And after a long period of decline, hospitalization rates remain flat over the last seven days. Now, in total, 30,081 have been hospitalized. And of those, 5,580 were ICU admissions. And since March, 7,492 deaths have been recorded. And this is according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. As the cases spike nationwide now, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp is extending the state's current COVID-19 restrictions through October 31st. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. You know, if there's one aspect of this job that I truly enjoy, it's, it's always the opportunity to speak to another journalist. And I've had a lot of those conversations on this program right here in Studio 4. You may recall last year when award-winning journalist and 60 Minutes correspondent Scott Pelley dropped by. And he shared not only covering but also witnessing the September 11 attacks in New York. And as I was standing there, I, I thought I saw the mast waving back and forth like a, like a metronome. I thought, well, that can't be. Uh, I thought maybe it was just the heat torturing the light and, and creating an optical illusion. But right after that, the building started to collapse. And, you know, you, you've heard people talk about seeing catastrophes or, or dramatic moments in slow motion. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm here to tell you, I don't know what that is, but it's true. 
when I was standing there, it looked to me like one floor fell and stopped, and then the next one, and then the next one. Mm. Wow. We also talked about the current state of news reporting, and Scott Pelley then defined responsible journalism. Well, my next guest, no doubt, will probably offer some similar insight and share her own into this landscape we call journalism. Clarissa Ward is CNN's chief international correspondent, and she's captured it all in a new memoir, On All Fronts, The Education of a Journalist. And she joins me now. Clarissa, thanks for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on, Rose. Let's begin here and recall for me a time when you were on assignment and thought, you know what, maybe this is not such a good situation and perhaps you feared the worst was coming. I think one of the moments that stands out was my first trip to Baghdad, or actually it was my second trip to Baghdad, but I was just 25 years old. I really had no experience in war zones. And we lived in a hotel called the Palestine Hotel. And the floor that we were on had kind of been armored. So it felt like being in a, in a nuclear bunker or a submarine of some sort. And one day, we heard just as Ramadan, uh, the sort of Muslim fast was ending for the day, we heard this massive explosion. Mm. And obviously when you're in Baghdad, you hear a lot of explosions, but this one was really, really close. And and then there was another explosion and all the windows smashed in and the doors were blown off their hinges. And it's so funny listening to what Scott Pelley just said about 9-11. And, mm-hmm. and first of all, I worked with Scott for years and, and I love him and I have such respect for him as a journalist. Um, but things do go into slow motion. And I just remember I was looking everywhere for what we call my run bag. And your run bag, you keep it by your bed. It's got a passport in it. It's got your money in it. It's got everything that you would need if you have to run away Mm. in the middle of the night and get to safety. And I couldn't find my run bag. And my colleague, this other producer, Jamana, was covered in dust and she couldn't find her shoes. And it was this bizarre scenario where I knew that we were under attack. I knew that people were trying to kill us. And I understood for the first time in my life that I could actually really die. Mm -hmm. And there was no sort of emotion or angst around it. There was just this slowing down of time, trying to find my run bag. And then in the back of my mind over and over again, I just kept saying, what am I doing here? Why am I here? why am I here? Like I could die. Like I don't belong here. And, uh, it was a very surreal and, and awful moment. And then there was a third blast, which was the biggest of them all. And we all hid in the panic room. And, uh, after about 10, 20 minutes, it became clear that the attack was over and we had actually been saved from death by a piece of razor wire. And this cement truck, cement mixer truck full of explosives had got stuck on the on the razor wire when it was like, I don't know, 100 yards away from us. And had it got much closer, we, we probably all would have died. But once you realize that you survived, the dynamic shifts and mm-hmm. it's thrilling and it's exciting and you've lived to tell the tale and someone opens a bottle of Jack Daniels and you're all <laughs> telling stories and there's a really enormous rush in that moment that comes with feeling like you you cheated death but uh it was an education for sure did anyone prepare you for that 
No, and I don't think anyone can really prepare you because I think there's two things going on. I mean, first of all, like when you watch movies about war correspondents, I think they tend to really glamorize the job and they make it look super badass and and kind of exciting and sophisticated and you're jetting around the world and it's like you're in an episode of Homeland and mm -hmm. uh and to a certain extent, that's true. It is exciting and there are adventures to be had and, and it can be thrilling. But what they don't necessarily delve into so much is the very real prospect of, um, of being in harm's way or seeing others in harm's way or being in a situation. Obviously, sometimes it can be simple things like a car accident mm -hmm. that can really hurt or, or, or kill people. But um that side of it, the reality of death, the reality of the danger is very difficult to convey in a way that doesn't glamorize the job. And the reality is when you're in those situations, there's nothing glamorous about it. In 2013, I went to Amman, Jordan to report on the Syrian refugees being helped by care. And mm -hmm. I was nowhere near <laughs> the border, but we were supposed to go to a refugee camp but mm -hmm. we, we couldn't because something had happened. And that was about as close, I think, to I've been in terms of even remotely experiencing mm. what you have. But I'm also, Clarissa, I'm remembering 2014, I think you and you were still with CBS News and you and the news crew were detained in eastern Ukraine. Oh, wow. You have a good man. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. It's like, you know, you've had a crazy life when you get kidnapped for the day by pro-Russian separatists in Eastern <laughs> Ukraine. And that chapter doesn't make it into the book. Okay. Uh, that's that a... <laughs> is not even in the book because there was so much already in the book that we were like, okay, you know, this doesn't have a home here. But it actually was pretty frightening and in a very different way than than the usual fear I've experienced. I wasn't worried about being killed. Mm -hmm. I was worried about being sexually assaulted. Mm -hmm. And I was worried about that because, you know, we were blindfolded and we were on this bus and we were driven somewhere we didn't know where, about 45 minutes away from where we've been stopped. And then when we were taken off the bus, we were separated and we were not allowed to speak at all. So we had no, I had no idea if I was with my colleagues still, if they were in the same room as me, if I was even in a room, it was very difficult to know where we were. And I was pressed against a wall by this man and he began to empty my pockets and, and take all my possessions. And there was this awful moment where he started to take off my earrings and it sounds so strange, but actually for someone to take off your earring, it's a very intimate gesture. It's very close to your body. And then as he was emptying my pockets, he was sort of massaging my, my, my butt. And I had this sort of panic moment where I was like, oh no, okay, the good news is we're not in Syria and this isn't ISIS and I'm, and I'm, I'm probably not going to be killed or executed, but I could be sexually assaulted, which I hadn't really been thinking up until that moment. Mm. And anyway, an assault did not happen, fortunately. Uh, my security guy uh, got roughed up a little bit and we were interrogated on someone's camcorder for hours in the most bizarre way. Um, but we were let go at the end of the day. Although one of the people who was holding us, who we met at the end of the day when they let us go, was later heard on the audio tapes. If you remember, 
when the separatists shot down MH17, that passenger flight. Mm -hmm. And he is the voice that is heard on one of those intercepts of a phone call he made to his Russian handler saying, oh no, we shot it down and it looks like it's a civilian plane. It's not a military plane. And that just gave me the, the willies, you know, just thinking that this guy who had held us for the day went on to be responsible for such a heinous act. And you take the reader into a world that viewers don't see, obviously, not mm. not aware of. Maybe as a journalist, I can understand a little bit. But I do want to focus on Syria for a moment. Being in that part of the world, knowing that you are also, Clarissa, you, you try to do your job, tell a story, you're a storyteller. But how do you process some of the images mm. that you have seen, that you have witnessed? Yeah, I mean, it's, listen, it's not easy. And I always tell young journalists who want to cover conflict, I'm like, even if you don't realize in the moment that this is messing with your head and taking a toll on you, like, trust me, the check comes at a certain point and the check will come. And if the check doesn't come, it probably means you're a psychopath, okay? Because if you're witnessing these kinds of things, if you're seeing children die, if you're seeing people suffer in that way, if you're a normal human being at some point, you will have to pay for that, right? You will have to to deal with that. You will have to process it. And I think in Syria, it was particularly hard because civilians were being so ruthlessly targeted and and killed in the most horrendous of ways and 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 to see families suffering like that and and as a journalist to not really be able to do anything to help them other than to keep telling your stories and then to realize that despite your best efforts and all your hard work and all the risks that you're taking it's not making any difference it's not mitigating their suffering it's not changing the course of history and that's hard and there, there's a real moment as a journalist where you have to try to make peace with that and and make peace with the fact that you know what it's okay you're not there to solve the conflict you're there to shine a light on it you're there to bear witness you're there to collect information that hopefully can one day be used to prosecute war crimes but you're not you're not supposed to be able to end the war and and that is okay and you have to accept that or you can't really do this job in the long run and that is difficult sometimes it is That's it really is and often you might have been not just the only American, but the only woman reporting from some region in the Middle East. And we found this clip. You were then working for CBS News. This is a Hamas press conference in 2012. <laughs> Does Hamas want peace with Israel? God willing, the American people will wake up, he said, and realize that it's better to stand with 350 million Arabs than to continue to support Israel. First of all, it looked intense, and I realize that's not, <laughs> I realize that's not an uncommon setting for you. Uh, wow. I'm just amazed you guys really did your homework. Um, that's what we do uh, around here. We ain't got nothing else to do. <laughs> Um, no, I mean, that was one of those moments where you're like, okay, I'm just not going to be able to ask a question unless I start shouting it out. And I, I know that Khaled Mesh'al doesn't speak English. Mm -hmm. So I was like, I'm going to have to ask it in Arabic and, you know, hope I don't butcher the language too much. And afterwards, his aide, as they were leaving the room, because he did answer my question. I think he was a little taken aback, like, who is this 
woman and his uh his aide came up to me and he said you are a hunter and um i was like all right hamas just told me i'm a hunter i'm like i guess you know uh, i'll take it i'll take it <laughs> it's you know it's all part of life's rich tapestry but you know you have to be willing to shout sometimes to get your question in there and obviously it helps if you speak a little bit of the language speaking of which you speak several languages correct I do, but I speak them at different levels. So I speak French and Italian well. I speak Russian and Arabic conversationally. Spanish, I understand almost perfectly because of my French and Italian. And then I speak basic Mandarin because I lived in China mm-hmm. for two years. Will the reader in On All Fronts, will they get a little glimpse into some the personal side of Clarissa Ward and what drives her to keep doing this and why she got into it? in the first place? Yeah, 100%. I mean, that's really what this book is about. I mean, not all about me, but it. this is about what happens behind the camera, right? And behind the camera is honestly where, where so much of the richness is, where so much of what guides us and shapes our understanding of a people or a conflict. It's about moments of kindness, moments of laughter, moments of human connection that they don't make it onto the evening news, but that's what's essential. That's what's human. And what I like to think about this book is that like, it doesn't matter if you're super engaged with what's happening in Syria, you can connect to this story and I'll be your guide. And I am very transparent and very open. And I do talk a lot about my personal life and my upbringing and my struggle with some of the things I've had to see during the course of my career. But basically it's a way for people to, you know, get out there and explore the world and um, more than that, it's a love letter to journalism, mm-hmm. honestly, and a thank you letter to all the people who have helped me along the way. And Clarissa, you continue with some of your assignments, and correct me if I'm wrong, well into the eighth month of your pregnancy? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was... when Now, my you first... know, there are people saying, what? Yeah, I, you know, I was very cautious, and I know that sounds kind of counterintuitive, but I went to Yemen when Mm -hmm. I was seven months pregnant with my first son, and I do actually think I wouldn't repeat that, Mm -hmm. not because I went anywhere where I could get shot at or anything. I didn't. I was very cautious, but because if something had gone wrong, I couldn't get proper, really uh, good medical care there. So um, one does learn. I also went to the um, Myanmar-Bangladesh border, and I sort of waded into the waters to try to interview fleeing Rohingya Muslims and you know, I, I don't know what to tell you. I understand that some people will find it really hard. Mm-hmm. I, I promise them that I, I take every precaution I can to mitigate the risk. But I firmly believe that we need mothers telling these stories. We mm-hmm. need that that vibrancy that comes with a diversity of perspectives on any given story. In this memoir, when did you start writing and how long did it take? You had a lot of stories to recall and collect here. So I started when I was pregnant with my first son. And I wrote the first draft in three months. Then I went back to work and it took me like another year to write the second draft. And it started out as a sort of a letter for my son. And then my agent pointed out that there was lots of cursing and death in it. And it looked a bit weird to have it be a letter to a baby. So we kind of reframed it slightly. And what I realized is that, yeah, it's a thank you letter. It's a thank you letter to all these people whose lives I've had the privilege of crossing paths with all these beautiful moments of, of human connection along the way that, um, that, that, that have profoundly moved me and, and that I feel very privileged to have experienced. Through your lens, are there certain traits you think make for a good foreign 
some say correspondent or war correspondent or mm. that's a really think? good question i think different correspondents have different strengths you know I, my military analysis is not what you're going to be coming to uh, coming to me for right um i think what i bring to it is empathy and compassion and and hopefully the ability to like tell a good story but i when people ask me what do you need to be good at this job mm -hmm. it's really all about the passion because if you don't want this with every fiber of your being, if you don't have that fire in your belly and that passion for this work, you won't make it. It's too hard. It's too competitive. And it requires, honestly, too much sacrifice. There's too many Thanksgivings in Afghanistan and uh, Christmases in uh, Iraq and New Year's Eves in Russia or whatever it might be. Too many weddings missed, too many funerals missed, too many relationships broken. Um you really have to want this with every fiber of your being and you have to be willing to give up a lot for it. And it is incredibly stressful and difficult. That said, mm -hmm. if you have that passion, it's the greatest job in the world, Early, in my humble opinion. I agree with you 100%. Earlier in the conversation, when I asked you about being able to shake a, an image or a setting. But now I want to ask you, how do you balance and disconnect when you need to? I struggle with that sometimes. I'm going to be honest. Oh, yeah. Tell me about it. I think we all do. And I, for me, like, there's two things. There's the guilt, right? So, I'll, like, one minute I'm in Aleppo witnessing all these abject horrors, and the next minute I'm sitting in the south of France, like, with my family and some friends and drinking rosé by the pool. Like, I'm like, on what planet is that acceptable? How is that fair that I get to just leave and go on vacation at the end of this? And there's a lot of sort of you know, you beat yourself up about that. You struggle with it. It shouldn't be right. I should be suffering still. I should be in misery. Why do I get to have, and what you understand as you, as you get more mature and more experienced is that you have to be able to process and enjoy and experience joy in your normal life, or you will not be able to go the distance doing this job. You will burn out really fast. Um, because the joy, the nourishment, the spiritual richness, the love, the family, whatever it is that does it for you, that's what fills the tank. And that's what allows you then to go back into these places and do your job and give 110%. But if you can't navigate the shuttling back and forth between both worlds, and it is hard, I won't pretend otherwise, and you do often feel disconnected and disenchanted and numb and irascible and all the rest of it, but if you can't make that work, if you can't learn how to be fully present in the moment in both places, in both lives, then you won't be able to last in this business. As we wrap up, but a couple more questions. What concerns you about our business and the industry and where we're going? And uh... Yeah, you know, I mean, look, it, it really disturbs me to see how journalism is being undermined, how the idea of truth is being undermined, like this is something one can equivocate about. Um, and... It just disturbs me as well that I think more broadly speaking, we're losing our ability as a society to listen. And fundamentally, we need to listen. We need to hear each other. That's not the same as condoning each other's ideas or ideologies. There is power and strength in being able to hold on to your own ideals and still listen to somebody else talk about their ideals, however misguided you might think they are. And so... I hope very much as journalists that we continue to, to do our jobs to listen, to stick to the facts, to tune out the noise and to keep doing our jobs and to have confidence in the fact that we are providing an important public service. 
tune out the noise. I think that'll be the name of my book. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you this. How much longer in our industry is there for you? How much longer you want to do this? For now, I can't imagine doing anything else. I love this job. I, I'm always learning. Right now, I'm getting really stuck into like investigative journalism, which has been such an eye opener for me. And it's so much hard work and you can do it for four months and then you hit a wall and it mm -hmm. doesn't go anywhere. And so it requires reservoirs of patience that I didn't have when I was younger. But I still like to think that this is the best job out there. We're telling people stories. We're giving a voice to people who might not have a voice and and we get to keep learning in the process. What what better job could there be? Uh, I think that's a good way to end this conversation. The memoir is called On All Fronts, The Education of a Journalist. And it's by Clarissa Ward, CNN's chief international correspondent. Clarissa, thank you so much for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. Always great to talk to a fellow journalist. Thank you, Rose. I really, really enjoyed it too. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Now more than ever, it seems small acts of kindness can actually make a big difference. We've been seeing a lot during this. We've seen many first responders and frontline workers, community leaders, and yes, even teenagers step up to help those in need during this, again, extraordinary time. And we've spoken to a few of them on this program. Well, right now we turn to a local business owner who many of you, when, when you hear, will be familiar with, who's embarking on her own journey to spread a little more kindness. She's calling it the Kindness Tour. And joining me now to talk more about this is Jenny Levison. But we all know her as Super Jenny, founder of the Atlanta-based cafe, and also Meg Guillantine, who's going to be riding shotgun. So, Jenny and Meg, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> so here's a question first. So, Super Jenny, if you are heading out, folks want to know, can they still get some soup and other stuff while you're gone? <laughs> <laughs> I'm asking for a friend. Um, I certainly. <laughs> I'm actually going to ask all the people in Atlanta if they could keep an eye out and visit and make sure that we're still open. <laughs> so, yes, I'm leaving. Uh, we've got all five locations are up in running. I'll still be doing the menus and creating recipes from the road. But, you know, they got this without me. So. Yeah. Um, I would appreciate anyone who'd like to let me know that we are open <laughs> when I'm gone. And at the last time you and I had a conversation, you were contemplating picking up my father's famous cornbread recipe, but you hadn't made a decision. So I don't know. What's up with that? I'm, you know, I'm still open to it. Have, could you send me the recipe for the road and we'll make it and test it out? All right, I will do that. Let's talk about hitting the road, Jenny and Meg. You know, what do y'all make of this time that we're in right now? And Jenny, you go first. Wow. Well, I don't even know if there are enough words to say what's going on in this time. There's so many different avenues. You know how you just read me that first line of your 
future book. Um, <laughs> I've just, yes, I just feel there is so much going on. There is so much work to be done. And sometimes we all don't know where to start. And this is uh, sort of my effort. I've, I've just got to do something. I've got to start somewhere um, with whatever means I have. Uh, but it's, it's a challenging time. Meg, what about you? Your thoughts? Um, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking to me and I feel like I, I'm an actor. So I, uh, sit with all the other actors that have been unemployed since March. And, you know, I've been sitting in my house twiddling my thumbs and, you know, I've got a friend here who she's not a just a, a gal that just talks about things. She actually does them. And when she came to me and said, hey, I'm going on this tour to feed people, you wanna go? I said, heck yeah, because I wanna get out there and I wanna hear the hope that people still have, um, how they're putting one foot in front of the other during this time. Um, I wanna hear people's stories. I wanna, um, you know, be inspired again. Uh, I think, you know, our, our, all of our hearts are sort of broken and, and we're all scared. And, you know, I'm, I'm even scared to go out on this tour, but I just know in the end, it's going to be the biggest blessing ever. Um, and, you know, I just, I, I want to look people in the face and have that community and that connection with somebody who just might be having a really bad day. Right. <laughs> just give them a smile because it's it just it's tricky. This, these times are tricky right now. And, and we just need a little bit more kindness and love. So that's what we're going to do. Exactly. Jenny, when did all this come to you? When did you decide, you know what, I'm going to load up this RV. I'm going to grab Meg <laughs> and we're going to hit the road for six weeks. It came to me about what, about three months ago. Uh, I was thinking about my son who's 16 is in school in New Hampshire. I had talked to a friend in Los Angeles who was scared to travel and scared to go on a plane. And I thought, well, maybe I'm going to, maybe I'll come pick you up and we'll travel back East and she'll pick up her daughter at school and I'll get my son. And then it just, I don't know. It just hit me when she started talking about maybe coming with me that I want to turn this into something bigger. I want to make it mean something and have some purpose. And I, it just hit me. And one day, and then I called Meg. Uh, I have some pretty great friends that are very adventurous. And I just asked her, you know, what do you think? Would you be interested? I think you said, it's, I have a crazy idea. I mean, <laughs> it's <a> crazy idea. <laughs> when you hear that from your friend, you're like, okay, what are you about to get me into? Exactly. Yeah. The truth is I'll jump in anything with Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> it's always worth a good laugh yeah. and some adventure. Yeah. So have you mapped out an itinerary? Where are you going to start? How far are you going to go? We have. We, um, we're we starting. Um, our first stop is going to be a farm in Shorter, Alabama, and we are feeding a group of people. It's sort of an underserved community. I've connected with a farm there. And then at the same time, we'll purchase vegetables, and then we are going to head to Selma because we have always wanted to walk the bridge, mm -hmm. and we are going to set up a free hot soup stand at the bridge at the Edmund Pettus bridge on Wednesday. Uh, and from there, yes, we have a whole route. We're hitting new Orleans, Austin, Houston, um, going up through the grand Canyon. We'll be heading out to Los Angeles, San Diego area. And then we're sort of coming back through Utah. 
um, Wyoming, St. Louis. Uh, so we're going sort of all around the country. And let's talk about this mode of transportation. You got an RV. I imagine it's a pretty nice RV. It's not bad. It's a 24-foot RV. Class C. It's a Class C RV, so it's not one of those gigantic things. Mm -hmm. uh, we did a trial run at Stone Mountain a couple weeks ago, so that was definitely uh, insightful. <laughs> <laughs> we are now experts at an emptying waste yeah. <laughs> and all the things you have to learn. But I'm, I love it. Like I'm a little scared to drive, but mm -hmm. I figure I'll get used to it. You've never driven an RV before, Jenny? Not before two weeks ago. <laughs> Meg, do you have any experience driving an RV? Um, I drove something similar in New York City and whacked the side mirror off of it. Um, but no, I'm with Jenny. Last couple of weeks ago, that was my first, uh, that was my maiden voyage on an RV as well. Do y'all need somebody else to go with you? Because I got to admit, I'm <laughs> we're actually really lucky because um, Meg's husband and son are going to um, caravan in their own RV for about half the trip. So that will be fun. And if there's something really horrible, we can ask him to help us with it. <laughs> maybe or maybe, maybe not. I don't know how much actually, help he's going to be. <laughs> Meg is a lot very handy. <laughs> well, at least the more the merrier. But let's talk about the cooking because in this Class C RV that you have, is it equipped for you to do all the cooking? Because you're going to be doing a lot of cooking here, Jenny. I am, and it does have a three-burner stove inside the RV. And then I've brought like a whole outdoor setup. So I have a double, you know outdoor stove. Um, I have one of those old fashioned giant kettles that you hang over a fire. Uh, so I'm ready to do a lot of cooking. And let's talk about some safety measures here because we are still in a pandemic. Absolutely. What measures will you have in place for that, Jenny and Meg? Well, of course, I'm following all the, the proper things like I would be working in our restaurant, you know, and working and cooking with gloves and doing all the things you should do. And then when we are feeding people, you know, we'll be masked up and gloved up. And, you know, we're not going to be having people hang around together for hours in a restaurant. You know, we're trying to do drop offs or do a quick like a to go soup station um, and, you know, doing everything that we've been doing up until now. And um, it's all in uh, to-go containers. Yes, everything's to-go. And in little, you know, bags. Jenny, did you think about um, stops here in Georgia or even, you know, traveling throughout the state? You know, you of all people know about food insecurity. And, you know, we've, and we, we have done some before even the trip has started. Um, I'm a big supporter of the free 99 fridge movement that's going on right now. So I don't know if you know Letitia. Um, we had her on the started. program a few weeks ago. You know, That's I'm on top fantastic. of things, Jenny. That's Come on, right. now. Well, Come on now. Uh, I mean, what a brilliant idea. And, you know, I personally, once a week, really try to get out and fill all the fridges um, and trying to look for ambassadors to take care of those. So uh, we're doing that. And then, you know, we still have our nonprofit, which you interviewed me about a few years ago. And mm -hmm. so that 700 quarts of soup going out to the community a week as well. So for our little community, uh, we're trying to do as much as we can. But, yeah, there's a lot of food insecurity in Georgia. It's going to need to be a whole trip in itself. Will you all document this journey? Will Meg be behind a camera or just using the old cell phone? 
I think we're going to use the old cell phone to document a lot of it. And, you know, we're going to document what we can. My main focus is the mission mm -hmm. and the kindness. And, uh, you know, I find sometimes our cell phones get in the way of, of sure. really beautiful moments. And uh, so I'm going to be really careful about that. But um, first and foremost, we're going to uh, get out there and hopefully... Um, change some hearts and some souls and make everybody feel real good. I feel that way too. And especially since we do some nonprofit work here at the restaurant, I feel that people um, that are in need, it's a private, it's very private. And mm -hmm. so I think our documenting will be more about the crazy things that happened to us and our trip rather than trying to catch the people we're serving. Like Meg camp. backing in into a sign or yeah. something like that. Yeah. 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 Like me running over, you know, a bike or something. Well, don't but, do that. Uh, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> um, and we also, you know, Rose, it's not just kindness through making people soup. Uh, I, I just want to look for opportunities wherever we are. And give back. You know, we can give to people. It could be driving through a Starbucks and buying 50 people coffee. You know, I just want to be sort of inspired in the moment of what we can do for people out on the road. And hopefully in turn, encourage people to, you know, do the same. And Jenny, I'll give you the last word. Vote. <laughs> okay. That doesn't have to be the last word, but please vote. <laughs> if that's your last word, that's your last word. But then you all will come back after six weeks, maybe after some rest. Come back and, and share with our listeners what the six weeks, what you discovered. That'd be awesome. I think our lives are going to be changed forever. Will folks be able to follow you though on social media? You know that's a big thing. You know, will y'all be able to? Absolutely. Um, the easiest way, if you're on Instagram, um, is to follow at following Super Jenny. Um, you can also follow Meg at Meg Guillotine. You can follow us um, on Facebook. There'll be that's the best way to find us. All right, Jenny Levison. Although we know her as Super Jenny, founder of the Atlanta-based cafe, and doing so much for the community. Also, Meg Guillotine, they are embarking upon a six-week journey called the Kindness Tour, where they will travel and they will make soup and they will meet people and they'll, and they'll be involved in a whole lot of other initiatives helping people. Meg, Jenny, best of luck to you all. And maybe, maybe we'll check in with you when you get to Utah. Yes, <laughs> I will check in with you. Say a prayer for us that we don't back into anything. <laughs> yes, I will definitely be doing that. No, I'm just kidding. And send me that cornbread recipe. And if anybody sees it, you know, the, the, the RV has signs on the side of it that says what it is. So if you see our RV out there, you might want to switch lanes. <laughs> Everybody else should just merge on over. You know what would be cool if you all discovered you had like a little caravan of, of cars and, and folks following you. How cool would that yeah. be? Yeah. That'd and you know what, awesome. Rose, also, too, I mean, you know, we're going to areas that Jenny and I have never been before. So if somebody's listening to this and, and knows a particular area, you know, we're taking the southern mm -hmm. route to uh, California, the 10, and, and we're going to hit Lake Charles and these areas that have, uh, you know, recently been yeah. hit by the hurricane several times. So mm -hmm. if anybody knows a particular area or a particular story that could use a little extra love and kindness, send them our way. Tell them to get in touch with us on Instagram or Facebook or call the restaurant, call Jenny's restaurant. Her people will get in contact with her. All right. That's great. That'd now, if we need to make this into a movie, are y'all thinking about who should play you? 
I mean, I, I don't want this to be like a Thelma and Louise thing here, you know. But we're um, play ourselves because we're actors. That, that is correct. You are. Yeah. You, are, you have your SAG cards, right? So y'all good to go. Switch roles. Yeah, I'll play Jenny. <laughs> I'll help write the screenplay. <laughs> Best of luck to you both. Thank you so much. And thank you for thank what you're doing. Thank you. Thank Be you. safe, okay? We will. We All will. right. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.